Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Global News, an article on seven U.S. teen boys in several states published online Friday in Pediatrics is among the latest reports of heart inflammation discovered after COVID-19 vaccination, though a link to the vaccine has not been proven. The boys aged 14 to 19 received Pfizer shots in April or May and developed chest pains within a few days. Heart imaging tests showed a type of heart muscle inflammation called myocarditis. Carditis, that's what it is. None was critically ill. All were healthy enough to be sent home after two to six days. Let's talk to our good friend, Dr. Isaac Bogosh, infectious diseases specialist at Toronto General Hospital, associate professor at the University of Toronto Department of Medicine. Dr. Bogosh, what about this? Oh, the myocarditis. Yes. Uh, look at Israel. Israel's been talking about this for a while. Uh, they discussed that this might... i got to be careful with my words. It's very likely, but not 100% related. So it could be related to the vaccine. You can never ignore that. It appears to be extraordinarily rare uh, based on you know just over 200 out of uh, over 5 million uh, doses given. And uh, 95% of those cases were mild. Um, we also should couch this with the virus causes myocarditis as well. And in fact, when they did uh, screening on, uh, on healthy young athletes, uh, up to 2.3% of individuals had evidence of myocarditis. So the virus can definitely cause myocarditis. We know that. The vaccine may cause myocarditis as a very rare complication. And all the data we've seen today demonstrates that 95% of the individuals who did get myocarditis, perhaps related to the vaccine, had very mild cases. Is it inevitable that there will be unexpected developments following vaccination with so little time to assess the total impact of vaccines over a protracted period? Well, I mean, we have to look at the clinical trials, and the clinical trials can only enroll about 20 to 30,000 people over time. So you're only going to see more common side effects associated with that. But look, remember AstraZeneca, right? You have these blood clotting events. Well, those occur at a rate of about, for first dose, one in about 55,000. For second dose, probably closer to one in 300 to one in 600,000. You will never see that in a phase three clinical trial that enrolls 25 to 30,000 people. You'll only see that when it rolls out to much larger, to millions and millions of people. That's what we call the phase four clinical trial, also known as post-marketing surveillance, very well known long before COVID-19. And that's exactly what we're seeing. Very rare, but not, you know, not insignificant, but very rare and real adverse effects. What do we make of this new variant? It now has a name, Delta. What do we make of this? How serious a threat is Delta? Is it, does it have the potential to create, I don't even want to say the words, a fourth wave? It rhymes with a schmorth schmave. Yeah, no, I mean, uh, I, you know, listen, you can't ignore these variants of concern. You just can't. Like, it's, it's more transmissible. It may cause more significant illness. But you also can't ignore that, like, a significant proportion of Canadians have received a first dose of a vaccine. And now all the provinces are pivoting and starting the second dose fast vaccine programs. I mean, listen, we're, we're going to get cases of this. We're going to watch this take over and be the dominant variant in, in Canada as it's doing elsewhere in the world, like in the U.K. But the question is, will it, you know, bring Canada to its knees and, and, and you know, paralyze and clog up our health care system. I mean, it's hard to speak confidently on the matter, but, like, come on, we're in the vaccine 
in, in the stage of mass vaccination. We're vaccinating, like, in Canada, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people per day. Second doses are going in fast. I think if we navigate our second dose strategy and continue with the first dose strategy and have like a, a smart second dose strategy as we're seeing in many provinces, I think we can win this race. So what is a smart second dose strategy? Because, uh, you know, we're, we're hearing, again, I've just been reading and hearing over the last couple of days, but once again, we should pivot to the more vulnerable demographics in our society. Um, is that where we're going? I mean, you're a member of yeah. the Ontario Vaccine Task Force. What do you see? Yeah, that's exactly it. You focus on two key things. Number one, individuals who are at greatest risk of severe outcomes. And number two, populations that are disproportionately impacted. So let's look at number one for one second. In Ontario, we've prioritized the 80 plus. Now we're prioritizing the 70 70 plus age group. We're also prioritizing certain medical conditions like different types of cancers, different types of uh, organ transplantation, and, and people who are on, you know, who have kidney disease on dialysis. Like, there's a lot of people who are prioritized for second doses. And in fact, it's even expanded beyond that. And now we're saying, listen, if you got a first dose and such and such a date and earlier, now you're eligible for second doses. So there's a good strategy here. The next pivot will also be to really pour more of these into hotspot neighborhoods. I can't speak for the rest country, but I think many other places are going to do something similar to that as well. And that's the right way to do it. Like, that's the right way to do it. We'll, we'll get through this. We will. Uh, and, you know, we're so much further ahead now than we were with the, at, the, at the beginning of the third wave with the B117 variant. That's the one in the United Kingdom. We're so much further ahead now, and I think we'll be able to navigate this okay. So is this COVID reality, is this now guaranteed that it's, well, as much as you can guarantee anything in life, but is it more or less certain, more than less certain, that it's an endemic reality and that we will have to be living with being vaccinated, receiving booster shots, shots for some considerable period of time? Yeah, I think that's completely accurate. This isn't going anywhere anytime soon. And you know what? Now, you know, we can talk about vaccine equity and ensuring everyone gets an equal opportunity to get vaccinated, putting back, lowering barriers to vaccines. But like at some point... Not yet, but at some point, this is going to transition to the people who aren't vaccinated are not going to be vaccinated by choice, not because of access. Now, we're not there yet, but fast forward a few months, we will be there. And the people who choose not to be vaccinated, I mean, I, I don't know what to say. Like, obviously, we need to continue to reach out and lower barriers and, and, and chat in a non-confrontational manner. But, like, you're going to get this infection. It's just a matter of time. It's around. It's transmissible. And it's dangerous, despite what people might hear and think. It is. Come walk with me through the wards. I'll show you 20, 30, and 40-year-olds that are admitted to hospital with this. Totally unnecessary, totally preventable. Vaccines are very, very effective. I, I just, I really hope people choose to get the vaccine when it's their turn. Different flows of information on just how much efficacy there is from one shot. I just received this email from Barb, who's listening to the program in Belleville, Ontario, Roy, if I'm unable to accelerate my second dose to sooner than 16 weeks, is my Pfizer vaccine still going to protect me? The answer is yes. It's just not going to protect you to the same extent that two doses will get. So one dose of Pfizer, depending on the variant that's circulating, still provides north of 30% protection. People scoff at that, but you shouldn't. Think, like, let me remind people of the influenza vaccine, right? That could be anywhere from 20 to 60% uh, effective year after year, depending on the year. So 30% protection is a hell of a lot better than 0% protection if you don't get the vaccine. And of course, 
in much of Canada, those second doses are likely going to be much earlier than 16 weeks. Maybe not. It's not going to be later than 16 weeks, and it'll likely be earlier than 16 weeks. Children back at school. What do you say? Let's do it. I mean, if we're talking about right now, obviously the decision has been made in Ontario. I would have taken a regional approach. This is a massive province. There's some areas that are having zero to one new cases per day. I mean, give me a break. I would have put this in the the hands of the local medical officers of health. They know their communities. They know the burden of infection. They know the needs of the communities. I would have made this a regional decision. And it's okay to have a regional decision here. And uh, I think some places would have gone back to school, and I would have been in complete favor for that. Other places might not have, and that's okay, too, as long as there's a regional decision-making. Come the fall, yeah, I mean, let's do it. We should have very, very few cases come the fall. We should have a ton of our population vaccinated. Community rates should be very, very small. I don't know if there's going to be masks and whatnot in schools, but if they, but, but kids should definitely be in school in the fall. Dr. Bogosh, are you seeing evidence at all of kids suffering emotional distress, perhaps physical response to being socially isolated, to not being able to live their lives as they should be. I'm totally getting over my skis on this one because I'm an adult infectious disease specialist and I'm a general internist for adults, but I, I'm not, uh, you know, you can't ignore the mental health toll that this virus takes on the entire population. And of course, children are resilient, but we can't ignore the mental health aspects of this virus on kids, right? Keeping kids home, keeping, you know, cooped up, it, it, this is, however we slice and dice this, this is, there's certainly negative mental health impacts of this virus on kids, and I would argue on everyone in the country. No one's coming out of this unscathed. We can't ignore that, and I really hope there's a real strong push for strong mental health supports when the dust starts to settle, which is starting to settle now. Yeah, I mean, we have parallel pandemics going on. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you can't ignore the op- opioid crisis. You can't ignore ch- child mental health. You can't ignore elder mental health. I would just say mental health in general, because let's let's be honest here. This is this has been tough on everybody. And uh, you know, I don't want to get into what aboutism here. I think it's there's 38 and a half million of us that are that are hurting, and some are more public about it than others. But this really is time to to have an open and honest conversation about this. Get supports for people that need it. Meaningfully check in on one another, not the hey you doing okay kind of check in, like a real check in, because there are going to be people that will need additional support. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend. 